This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Like most of you, I have a list of persons with whom I hope to have someday a conversation. Now, as I look at that list, I realize that many of these people are now no longer with us. Many of them lived in centuries past. I know them through their books, their writings, and their influence on me. But I'll never have the opportunity in this life for a conversation with them. There is a list of living persons. And very close to the top of that list is the man with whom I'm having the conversation today. That man is Leon Cass. I'm looking forward to this conversation and to sharing it with you. Most Americans know Leon Cass through his service as chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics during the Bush administration. He served as chairman of that very important body from 2001 to 2005. He's been one of America's most prominent public intellectuals, serving in a host of academic posts, concluding in his service as the Addie Clark Harding Professor in the College and Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. He now serves in that position as Emeritus Professor, having retired, but certainly not having retired, as one of America's most prominent public intellectuals. Leon Cass, welcome to Thinking in Public. Nice to be with you, Dr. Muller. You know, when I look back at uh, at the last 20 years or so, certainly in terms of bioethical thought, uh, it, it's hard to come to terms with how much has happened and how much has not happened. You served as chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics in 2001 to 2005, and uh, I, I followed very intensely the work of the council then and now. And I look at some of the comments you made in terms of warning about uh, such things as the fact that uh, Americans seem to be against cloning, but Congress still has not adopted any legislation against cloning. I, I look at the status of the human embryo. I just have to ask you, have we learned anything over the last two or three decades? Well, um, it, it's very hard when you're in the midst of all of this to really assess um, which, which way the wind is blowing. In in some respects, uh partly thanks to our work, but not only our work, uh, the public discourse in bioethics has come to be more serious, and it has uh, gathered more attention in the public eye than it used to when I first started in this field. Um, and uh, I thought, um, in, in some ways, the debate, uh, a public debate about a ban on human cloning and the public debate surrounding uh, embryo research and embryonic stem cell research um, wasn't bad. I mean, there was a lot of uh, hype and some dishonesty in the presentation of the issues. Uh, but uh, it was, you know, if you look back over our history, this was one of the few times when bioethical issues really got the public's attention and for a long time and in a sustained way. Now, that's not to say where that where we've come out is uh, is all that wonderful, as you point out. We we still don't have a ban on human cloning of any sort, and um, uh, the uh, embryonic stem cell uh, issue is the, the pendulum is swung now in the direction of, uh, of of a more utilitarian and exploitative uh, view, uh, and I think that's a source of some concern. Uh, I suspect, by the way, that um, when the story of this period is told, at least with respect to the stem cell research, um, I think that that we're going to have a way of getting perfectly good stem cells for research without using embryos at all 
and one will have seen that uh, if, if only people had put their effort into this uh, with greater vigor and sooner, um, we wouldn't have had to go through this very painful period. But that's, that's, uh, that remains finally to be seen. Well, I have to hope you're right. And I, I certainly will be on record as hoping you're right. But I look back at a statement you made now over two years ago. Back in February of 2008, you spoke about the United States appearing to be incapable of erecting any moral barriers to the march towards a brave new world. And right. you mentioned the human embryonic stem cell issue, President Obama's uh, changes in the policy are moving uh, d- d- quite determinatively in the wrong direction. Uh, have we done anything, you think? Have, have, have you seen any progress, say, over the last uh, 24 or 36 months towards Americans really coming to terms with what this means for what it, it, it means to be human? Uh, no, I think, I think uh, in some ways we've lost ground uh, over this last period. Uh, we, uh, I mean, President Bush did, uh, did uh, heroic service in, in doing what he did. But even uh, in during his presidency, one couldn't get the cloning legislation through. Um, and uh, his policy initially, uh, I thought, a, a prudent uh, and principled policy uh, was turned out to be under attack almost from the day that uh, it was established. Um, look, I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is that um, American bioethics in, in public that is to say, legislative and, and, and public policy bioethics, uh, for better and for worse, has been identified solely with the life question. That is to say, with the killing question, whether it's the end of life and issues like Terry Schiavo or the beginning of life and questions of abortion or the use of embryos. Um, and uh, there are a lot of other issues in, in bioethics for which there's almost no public, uh, uh, organized public concern. Um, and uh, the division in the country over the life questions, in a certain way, bedevils our ability to do anything in the, in, in the bioethical arena. Uh, the council, uh, at one point, um, and we were a divided council, deliberately divided uh, by appointment uh, to be divided over these issues, uh, I, I suggest that, look, let's set aside our disagreement on the status of the embryo, and let's see if we can nail down certain kinds of things that all of us, uh, whatever our view about the embryo, should be uh, eager to prevent. No placement of human embryos in the bodies of an animal. No mixing of human egg and animal sperm or vice versa. Uh, no buying and selling of human organisms at whatever stage of development. No child shall be conceived, say, by the union of egg and sperm, each taken from an adult. Now, these were really elementary sorts of things. And uh, I got the entire council to agree unanimously that these would be desirable things to enact legislatively. And when this thing came out, we were attacked from both the left and the right. And uh, we couldn't get the, and, and, and the White House was, I think, quite eager to have this go forward legislatively. But some of our friends thought this was insufficiently helpful uh, to uh, the war about uh, against embryo research, and we lost our backing. So um, a part of the reason we don't have progress is because of this really cultural impasse or political cultural impasse on the status of nascent life. Um, I think 
culturally speaking, there's probably been some progress in terms of more and more people, I think, declare themselves pro-life. I think it becomes harder and harder to treat nascent human life as nothing once we have uh, sonograms and all these wonderful pictures that show the continuity of life from the very beginning. But that hasn't yet translated into anything in the way of, uh, of sound public policy and in an enduring support of human dignity, whether in the beginning of life or in the fullness of life. I have tried to, uh, to come to an understanding from afar of your ethical uh, theory. And uh, when I read you, I realize you, you began as a physician and a biologist and found your way as a humanist into, uh, into bioethics. Uh, you know, I think the most interesting aspect of your thought to me, and, and from the, firm, the first moment I heard it, is your, your ethical understanding of the wisdom of repugnance. Could, could you just kind of lay that out for us, how that works? Well, I mean, it's, there's something paradoxical to, in, in speaking about, speaking about um, the wisdom of repugnance when repugnance is, is, a, is a kind of feeling um, that comes upon us when we encounter things that are matters of revulsion, disgust, uh, repellence, uh, in fact, repugnant. Um, and it was a phrase that uh, was the title of an essay I wrote uh, on human cloning uh, and concluding with why I think we should outlaw it. Um, but it was a suggestion that um, some of the deepest um, moral matters that, and, and foundational moral matters that human beings have to deal with and about which they have guided themselves uh, for centuries are not conveyed by rational argument of the sort that professors of philosophy enjoy uh, uh, raising with their students and their colleagues but are sometimes conveyed by deep feelings uh, and in the negative sense. And we have positive feelings, too, that, that guide us, compassion towards the needy and, 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 and the helpless. But uh, also this, this sense of repugnance, uh, is a, it's not a foolproof guide, but it's at least a warning that you are treading upon something humanly profound uh, the violation of which uh, you will pay for in cost of your humanity. And I suggested in this article that uh, rational argument can't really explain, can't, ra rational argument can't really explain um, the taboos against incest or eating human flesh, or even why uh, murder and adultery are uh, abominations. I mean, we react to these things viscerally, and it's a good thing, too, that we don't have to depend upon some moral philosopher's perfectly persuasive argument uh, to keep us from uh, staying our hand at all of these things. Yeah. Um, this, mm -hmm. is, this is just a piece of, of, I mean, this is not saying that, um, you know, in, in, in morality, uh, we just listen to the things that we find uh, uh, to which we say, ugh, um, one can give arguments as to what's wrong with cloning. But most people, uh, even before they think hard about it, say there's something really repellent about this notion that the child should be a genetic copy of somebody who's gone before, that he should be manufactured rather than begotten, etc., etc. I have an, so a, yes, and I have enormous please. appreciation for the category and for the shorthand you offer. You know, it, it, for people who uh, who might not be able to carry around the wisdom of repugnance, uh, the, the yuck factor certainly does communicate. 
there are certain uh, issues, uh, the morality of which, uh, by intuition, call forth the response of, of yuck, uh, of, of abhorrence, of, of, of indeed repugnance. I just want to ask it, you, excuse me. I, I just want to say half a sentence. Yeah. That, um, people will characterize this as, um, as irrational, uh, whereas I mean, part of the suggestion is when you use the wonderful word intuition, uh, there, there is a moral intuition which is carried by this emotion. It's not just um, uh, a gut feeling. I mean, there's, yes. there's a kind of insight that there's something here that really is repellent and should be said no to. And in the Christian tradition, we can draw a line from Augustine to Aquinas to Jonathan Edwards uh, with an understanding that human beings as composite creatures, in terms of moral response, often well, our first response is often the response of intuition. And, uh, and, and oftentimes we actually have to operate as moral actors uh, out of an intuition that we hope is, is rightly shaped. Uh, you know, I, I'd say I, th- I hope is rightly shaped by Scripture. Uh, the, the Catholics would enter and say, rightly shaped by natural law. And uh, the Jewish tradition, uh, you know, would just begin to say, uh, you know, is shaped by wisdom. And uh, so the wisdom of repugnance, I see, is very important there and a key insight. But, Professor Cass, if I could press you just a little on this. Please. Uh, what concerns me about that is uh, well, it's, it's kind of like what some historians say, you know, the, the, the chastening history of the 20th century. It, it appears to me that uh, in fairly short order, human beings have uh, demonstrated themselves to be capable of getting over yuck, yes. of, uh, of renegotiating repugnance. And, uh, and whether it's, uh, it's the killing fields of Cambodia or it, it, if it's uh, the, the atrocities and, and unspeakable crimes of the Third Reich uh, conducted by people who are raised in the cradle of a Christian civilization, uh, or, or you, just, you just go after atrocity after atrocity. And, uh, and even in the United States right now, just, just gauged by public opinion surveys, how much moral shift there has been on the issue, uh, say, of, uh, of same-sex relations. Uh, it, it appears that human beings are capable of renegotiating their intuitions in fairly short order. Well, I think that's right. And uh, I, was, I was hoping you'd give me a chance to say that the wisdom of repugnance is the title of one of my essays and is only a tiny piece of my own uh, approach to moral questions uh, and in part, uh, in part for the very reason that you offer, um, uh, repugnances change. Some of the repugnances that we feel are, in fact, ignorant repugnances, and the more you think about things, you get over those things. But uh, human beings can get used to all kinds of uh, atrocities. Uh, Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov says, man gets used to everything, the beast. And then we're able to rationalize all kinds of things that uh, are, in fact, uh, abominable. So um, uh, what morality doesn't begin with this, and it doesn't end with this. Um, one needs uh, both uh, uh, fairly clear moral instruction, often in the form of maxims and laws, uh, and the Bible, both the Jewish and Christian, uh, filled with this this sort of uh, of, of moral instruction. Um, there are also uh, the 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 ethics of character and the habituation of people um, toward uh, 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 the, the conduct which is both uh, noble and and, and just, uh, and the virtues of, of moderation and generosity and uh, you know gentleness and courage. And uh, 
the practice of uh, of moral responsibility, owning up to uh, taking responsibility for our acts. These go well beyond any kind of native uh, sentiment that we might have, and that which is alterable. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I don't have a worked out moral theory or come at things from a single point of view. Some of my insights are, I think, sort of philosophical and anthropological. I've studied uh, and learned a lot from Aristotle and the Nicomachean Ethics, and I've, uh, especially in the latter part of my life, drawn heavily on and learned a great deal from my own uh, Jewish religious tradition. Um, not, uh, I can't sort of point to this or that thing that I've done in bioethics that says, ah, this comes from there. Um, but uh, uh, look, I'm looking for, as all of us should be looking for, the best possible support we can find uh, for upholding uh, the very fragile uh, social arrangement which um, does honor to the human being made in the image of God. As I anticipated my conversation with Dr. Leon Cass, I knew that I wanted to talk about the issues of bioethics, and I wanted to zero in on that issue of the wisdom of repugnance, not because you can reduce Dr. Cass's ethical theory to that one statement, but because it encapsulates so much of what is really at stake in the big biomedical controversies of our day. I find it fascinating that Dr. Leon Cass set out to be a physician, was trained as a biologist, but ended up dealing with so much of his life with issues that are really raised by the human sciences, and especially in the field of bioethics, an expanding, indeed even exploding field, that Dr. Cass has contributed to in a way that is virtually unprecedented. But as I knew I was going to be talking with Dr. Leon Cass, I knew that there were other issues I wanted to consider as well, something of a, a different side and an unknown dimension to many Americans of his academic and intellectual work. And it's to those issues that we now turn. Throughout his career, Leon Cass has offered intellectual leadership in dealing with uh, any number of questions that are fundamental to humanity, to the humanities as academic disciplines, and to the meaning of, of really who we are as humans and, and what it means, as he just said, uh, to be made in the image of God. One of his most recent books is entitled The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis. Professor Cass, I just want to turn to you and say, at this stage in your life, uh, what does it mean to return to Genesis as a source of wisdom? Well, um, Dr. Muller, I was I was uh, not raised on uh, on scripture. I was raised in a Yiddish speaking. Uh, I'm a first generation American. My parents were immigrants. Um, it was a progressive, even socialist home, uh, and uh, on the other hand, a very strongly moral home. And it only dawned on me much later when I was married and had children that the moral teachings of my home, um, which were quite strict, uh, were in fact parasitic on the, the Jewish tradition, which my parents' generation, leaving Europe, had broken away from. And uh, quite by accident, I mean, that was part of the discovery, and uh, uh, joined as a synagogue when my children were born and tried to give them something of an education, get, get an education myself, 
that I didn't have as a as a as a boy, but also um, uh, simply teaching uh, a course on what it means to be a good human being and a good citizen to freshmen at the University of Chicago, in which the Bible was by our choice uh, reading both New Testament and Old. Um, I just got hooked on these stories. I, I couldn't get them out of my mind. And it seemed to me that um, uh, that that you that they were accessible even to non-believers, that they were a source of deep wisdom about what it means to be a human being in all its moral ambiguity. And that these stories rightly read, uh, could be a mirror in which we could see deeply into the human soul, into humans, into the elements of human social and psychic life, um, and that uh, the Bible could hold its own. I mean, this is not news to you, but it was news to me growing at this stage of my life. The Bible could more than hold its own in in conversation and uh, and controversy with the best things that the Western philosophical tradition had to offer. And I eventually got up enough nerve to teach a course on Genesis uh, when I, I finally figured, look, I'm not going to do the kids any harm if we just read this book for what it meant um, uh, and, and what it might offer us. And as a result of teaching it some dozen times uh, to undergraduates and graduate students in Chicago, I sort of put together this, this book, which is... Uh, an attempt to help other people find their way into the text, um, bracketing in a certain way the question of faith at the beginning. Read this as if it just might be telling you the most important things you need to know about yourself, your life, and the world. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you'd be a fool to uh, to leave it out of, of your serious attention uh, if you if you only knew what if, if you only knew what was in it. And I couldn't help but think of that uh, when I read your Jefferson lecture and heard it from last year, in which you said that uh, it was the subject of humanity that led you to find something missing. And quoting you here, you said, the science was indeed powerful, but its self-understanding left much to be desired. I knew the human parts, it knew the human parts in every ever finer detail, but it concerned itself little with the human whole. Medicine then and now has no concept of the human being, of the peculiar and remarkable concretion of psyche and soma that makes us that most strange and wonderful among the creatures. So, you know, you were trained as a physician and as a biologist, but you came to understand that there was a wisdom there that was lacking. Yes, and, and it, I, I mean, truth to tell, it, it was not my first place to look. I mean, I, I spent probably you know, 15, 20 years with the Greeks um, trying to recover um, uh, something like the view of the human being that's found in the writings of Plato and Aristotle, and rich writings they are. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of what I've learned, and, and that was in a way the beginning of a search for what was missing from modern science, to go back before modern science to see what ancient wisdom looked like. But it took me a while, really, to get from the Greek philosophers to to the Bible. Um, and uh, while I still love the Greeks, it seems to me that uh, on certain kinds of uh, really, really profound matters, the most profound matters. Uh, the Bible goes beyond the Greeks uh, in important ways, uh, partly by, uh, in terms of 
man's longing for the divine and for a relationship with God, partly for its recognition of the really the radical equality of every human being, um, regardless of station, regardless of capacity, uh, that uh, I came really to see that um, it's in fact the biblical notions which are at the foundation of a truly humanistic politics of the sort that we enjoy, a politics of of freedom and equality uh, where human beings are respected um, regardless of uh, of, of their, their their class or nation of origin, um, and that uh, it's been um, exhilarating for me as an old man or an older man to um, to recover this kind of um, this 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 avenue of the search for wisdom, which in my own case still continues. I want to draw a line from that uh, to another one of your your research and writing subjects, and one that's of particular interest to me. And in so doing, I also want to mention that uh, as I can track your biography, you and your wife, Amy, uh, Mrs. Cass, uh, will be celebrating your 50th wedding anniversary next year. You're right about that. We are uh, very blessed in that way. Well, you have written about that, and you've written about that together. And uh, you've spoken about the end of courtship and uh, of great loss to us all. I want to read to you. Again, another statement that you've made. You said today there are no socially prescribed forms of conduct that help guide young men and women in the direction of matrimony. People still get married, though later, less frequently, more hesitantly, and by and large, less successfully. For the great majority, the way to the altar is uncharted territory. Now, many of us have noted much the same. How do you think we lost this in the midst of the uh, the, the numerous and uh, perhaps uncharted losses of, uh, of, of the modern age? Dr. Muller, the, the I mean the the, the causes of, of how we've got I mean the, the the reasons why we've gotten to this point I think are are overdetermined um, from the obvious role of the sexual revolution and the decline of of uh, sexual self restraint and uh, the disappearance really of female modesty and gentlemanly conduct to uh, uh, a certain in some communities, and I'm fairly sure not in those uh, closer to you, uh, but in the larger uh, communities, um, a certain decline of the, in the belief in the importance of marriage or in, and its goodness, uh, a, uh, a certain emphasis in the elite on the import, relative importance of career, um, uh, and... Um, well, it, and and uh, in general, a, a certain kind of excess of the, of the kind of liberal ideal, individualistic ideal um, of autonomy, lack of attachment, being free, making making something of yourself, uh, and uh, I think young people still and this this has been our experience and we did a couple of courses on courtship uh, which sort of bore this out on the tip of their tongue they have all kinds of cynical notions about marriage and they'd say things like the idea of being married to the same woman for 25 years is preposterous 
uh, or uh, we're not supposed to get married until we're 28, so all of our relationship with boys are supposed to be impermanent. These were actual remarks on the first day of class, and uh, Mrs. Cass and I decided, uh, I, I, I didn't want to go back for the second day to tell you the truth. She says, never mind, wait until they do the readings. You'll see that they, they have deeper feelings. And it's true. Um, they have, uh, young people have a deep desire to be taken seriously and to be esteemed. They have a desire for some kind of lasting friendship, um, uh, but they're afraid. Uh, they're afraid to give their heart because they're afraid it will be rejected or that uh, they will be disappointed. The bad examples of many of their parents or the sad examples of many of their parents has made them very, very cautious. And um, it's a very sad thing to see a younger generation that can certainly fall into lust, uh, without any provocation, but they fall in love um, very little. <clears throat> and um, the culture has led them astray in sexualizing everything and blurring the distinction between sexuality and, and eros, um, which has in it uh, the longings for eternity, uh, the promise of forever, a desire for immortality, uh, they, uh, they, they don't, they don't exercise, they, they don't have such feelings. They, they think, well, if she doesn't like me, there'll be another one. And, uh, to an old romantic like myself, it's, um, it's, it's very sad to see. Uh, the other thing is, uh, uh, romance by itself, uh, is not a sufficient guide, uh, to, to lasting marriage. That was the whole purpose of courtship, that was to take the erotic beginnings and discipline them in the direction of marriage, so that there had to be a period of time where people got to know one another and got to know one another in their families and began to see that uh, what this spark that had uh, 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 arisen in both of them pointed to was in fact something that transcended themselves and issued in the next generation and in their own replacement and things of that sort. And that um, uh, that's partly what the religious traditions have taught to sort of lift up what was erotic and discipline it under a promise um, and put it in the context of a religious community with witnesses and those who've raised you and those who see where your life is going even before you see it yourself. Um, those things outside of the seriously religious communities have weakened very, very badly. So um, uh, you see a generation of, of, of young people who uh, don't have the spark, and uh, if they have the spark, they don't have the cultural forms to discipline it in this direction. Um, and uh, I understand that there has been something of a turn back, uh, especially amongst the wealthier and college-educated people toward marriage. The divorce rates seem to be coming down some. Uh, but uh, look, the cohabitation rates uh, living together outside of marriage are going up. And these people think this is practice in marriage, whereas it's practice in the very opposite of marriage. And we could have a fascinating conversation at that point about uh, rational choice theory and yep. uh, and why it is that those who have more to lose 
uh, tend to, uh, to, to at least uh, husband or to conserve their, uh, their investment in marriage, whereas others may have, may have less investment. But coming full circle and, and taking all that, that we've talked about here, I, I want to throw you a question that, that seems to me to arise directly out of our conversation, and, th- and that is this. Can we expect the development of healthy moral intuitions at the same time that we're tearing down the institutions that, uh, that, that structure morality? That, that, that's what seems to me to be very much at stake in the contemporary argument over marriage. Uh, it's not just a matter of who can marry whom, and uh, as, as a matter of rights, that's the way it gets uh, you know, thrown over into what Marianne Glendon calls rights talk. It, it's to me the question as to how in the world we're going to get the right moral intuitions w- while we destroy the moral institutions. I, I think this this is uh, dead dead right. I mean, um, uh, the really the nursery of humanity uh, um, is or ought to be the family. I mean, it's of course aided by church and synagogue, and it aided by the larger community in all kinds of subtle ways. But it is it is the household where. Um, Young children uh, require uh, have their first encounter with um, a beneficent authority, which is interested in their good, which treats them um, better than they deserve just because they are here and are needy. Um, that, in a certain way, the parents stand as agents of God's providence uh, in giving life, nurturing life, educating life to take its proper place uh, in the community and, in fact, to replace the parents who have invested in them. Um, And that uh, to not understand marriage as primarily the nursery of the next generation uh, and to see that this is not about personal self-fulfillment or enjoying our rights to live with and enjoy sexually whomever we please. Uh, this failure of the understanding of the deeper meaning of the institution of marriage, both uh, culturally and politically, is, I think, very, very worrisome. The problem is not just about gay marriage. Um, the problem is also about heterosexual marriage, and we've seen it in the culture for, uh, for, for decades. Um, and where, uh, where, where people think that marriage is simply about self-fulfillment or companionship, and it's about those things to be sure, but not to understand that um, the way we pay back for uh, all of the gift of life and rearing and education and the transmission of a certain moral understanding of them and and more than moral understanding of the meaning of our being here, uh, not to understand that that's really what's at issue in marriage and what marriage is the foundation for, is to have, I think, pulled the rug out from underneath the entire culture. And I don't know how you get it back. I don't know how you get it. It's very easy to tear down, um, and it's being torn uh, I mean, there are pockets in the community which are really uh, doing very, very well. The Orthodox Jewish community is doing extremely well. The Evangelical Protestant community is doing quite well. There are other groups that are doing, you know, understand this problem and um, are insulating their own and educating their own in ways that can keep the culture alive. 
but the dominant popular culture, the so-called elite culture, um, it's not all that elite in my opinion, uh, they, um, uh, they have, by their practices and by their lack of understanding, have, have really weakened the intellectual support for, for this institution and um, goodness knows the passions that uh, have to be restrained in order for these institutions to work well are very powerful indeed. You let them loose and lots of mischief is done. Now that was a conversation worth having. Listening closely to what Dr. Cass said, we come to understand that courtship, for example, falls within a far larger moral context than even those who were participating in it at the time of courtship really understood. The loss of rituals, the loss of institutional structures like courtship, points to the loss of a far greater good, and that is the moral universe in which such things make sense and are seen as necessary. Looking back, I'm fairly certain that I first came to know Leon Cash through his writings and journal articles and books. It was through the medium of his written expression that I came to understand him long before he became the kind of public figure that we knew him to be in the first decade of the 21st century. Now, as we read, we come to understand certain kinds of authors, certain thinkers who have the kind of interests that, that we find overlapping our own. We also find through them ways of thinking differently than we would think if we were just in a conversation with ourselves. The classic example of my engagement with Leon Cass is how I found my own thought being prodded, instigated, somewhat uh, changed, and through the catalyzing effect of engagement with another mind, sharpened by Leon Cass. It, it shows something of the power of the written word because I had never met Leon Cass. I never had the privilege of a personal conversation with him until the conversation that we're sharing together today. That shows you something of the power of books and of written expression. And an author never knows exactly where his words and his thoughts are going to go. But as I had the conversation with Leon Cass today, I, I wanted to think about how we engage another mind on these ethical issues and come to terms with how they make a distinctive contribution at a very particular time in an intellectual context that is formative and very important for our understanding. You'll recall that I read back to Dr. Cass something that he said in the year 2008 as he was looking back at his tenure as chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics. He said that the United States appeared incapable of erecting any barrier toward the onward march of a brave new world. Now, I think that sense of urgency is very, very important. I was sitting in a chair in a studio wired for an interview back in 2001. As President George W. Bush was getting ready to announce his policy on embryonic stem cell research. Now, the context of this was intense controversy. I was sitting in a television studio for a national broadcast because the host of that program wanted to have a conversation about the meaning of the president's policy when as yet we did not know what that policy was. I was impressed in that moment with George W. Bush as a teacher. Back there in 2001, as he announced this policy, he took the time to take it apart, to speak about why the human embryo is morally important, why his administration saw an imperative to speak on behalf of the human embryo, and to point towards medical research that would take advantage of the incredible power of the stem cell without destroying human embryos. I knew that something was in the background of this. Some mind and some contributor was in the background of this kind of policy. 
And it came quickly to light that this President's Council on Bioethics that was headed eventually by Dr. Cass had a very determinative impact on influencing an American president as he made a very important policy decision. Now, Dr. Cass spoke of his time as chairman of that body and of the frustrations. He spoke of it in the political reality being attacked from both the left and the right. But there is no doubt that President George W. Bush's Council on Bioethics had a very important impact on setting the stage for many of the most important debates we're having today. But when you look back at the context of the first decade of the 21st century, we come to understand that there were so many issues on the table. Embryonic stem cell research was just one of them, and now there are many more, and others are likely to follow. You know, when I came to know the ethical theory of Leon Cass and started looking at his writings, I was immediately struck by that phrase that we've already talked about, and that is the wisdom of repugnance. I think there's something to it. Now, as I think about this, I'm aware that there are different traditions of moral reasoning, and three of them that are worth our mentioning here are the evangelical or the Protestant method of revealed ethics. That, that is, an ethic that is basically grounded in divine revelation and in the exposition and application of principles drawn by revealed wisdom. And then there is the Catholic theory of, of natural law. That means of moral argumentation is also rooted in Scripture, but actually finds the structure of its argument from the application of the law that is revealed in nature. The Jewish ethical reasoning tradition is more about accumulated wisdom. And the kind of wisdom that, for instance, is referenced by Dr. Cass in his work on Genesis. But the wisdom of repugnance, well, that's a very, very interesting term. It's one that reaches out to us because we know it's true. There are certain issues, certain events, certain realities, certain moral acts that simply call out revulsion. And there is a wisdom in that. The question is, where does that revulsion come from? Well, the Catholic moral theorist would say it comes from our moral nature. There, again, is a natural law. And along would come the evangelical to say, yes, and that's a law that is written on the heart. It is a revealed law. It is a law that cries out to the human conscience. As the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, even if the individual has never actually heard or read the Scriptures. And along would come Leon Cast to add the word that there is a basic human wisdom. There's a sociological aspect to this as well. But as the three of our imaginary interlocutors might have a conversation, I think all three would have to admit that even though the wisdom of repugnance is a very real wisdom, as I pressed Dr. Cass and as he acknowledged very clearly in his conversation, there's a limit to that. Somehow, human beings appear to have an incredible ability to renegotiate repugnance. Things that were once considered to be absolutely abhorrent are now considered to be moral goods, or at least not of great moral consequence. And the reverse is also true. And we can look at this in terms of the history of humanity and see that some of this renegotiation of wisdom was for our good. But much of it, especially in recent decades, has been at the cost of the sanctity of human life, and the integrity of marriage, and at human dignity itself. I really enjoyed the second part of the conversation with Dr. Cass because it gets to so many of the issues that many people do not really put in the kind of moral context that he so clearly does. I really appreciated the conversation with him about courtship and marriage, and I especially appreciated the way we were able to talk about the fact that what Americans seem to want, including many who would consider themselves moral conservatives, are moral values without the institutions that anchor those values and those moral judgments. Long term, that's just impossible. 
as we tear down a courtship culture, as we tear down sexual responsibility, as we tear down respect for differences between the genders and sexes, as we, as we go through and just tear down and tear down and tear down, eventually there is nothing upon which to build the kind of moral structure in which a moral life makes sense. Now, I especially enjoyed the opportunity to talk with Leon Cass because of my interest in his work, his influence on my thinking, and because I think it's a rare opportunity for an evangelical Christian and a Jewish philosopher to have the kind of conversation we had here today. Each of us would want to take the conversation in different directions, and that's a part of what happens in the meeting of minds. And that's why evangelical Christians need to have this kind of conversation, and quite honestly, to enjoy it. And to understand that a conversation like this is a down payment on the kind of intellectual engagement to which we are called in the 21st century. It was a great honor to talk with Leon Cass, to think about these issues together. And as was the case in my reading of his books, in this conversation with him, I am led to think new thoughts and to want to go and rethink others as well. To think further along the lines of what it means to demand moral values without the institutions that would sustain them. To think about where we find the source of the kind of wisdom that we alone know will actually prevail in terms of establishing any kind of adequate moral consensus. When we look at the chaos and controversies of our day, we recognize that the issues are not fewer, they are more numerous, and it's likely to be that way for the entirety of our lifetimes. We are indeed in something of that brave new world that many of us have feared, and yet, by God's providence, here we are. We're going to have to negotiate this and think clearly. And as I speak to Christians, we're going to have to be thinking very, very clearly in ways that are consistent with that very revealed morality that we are absolutely confident is given to us in the inspired Word of God. But it's given to us in ways that require us to think. And as we think, we want not only to think well, we want to think biblically in order to think faithfully, in order to think rightly. We're going to have to think together. Thanks for joining me today for Thinking in Public. For more information, go to my website at albertmoeller.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmoeller. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. And for information about Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Don't forget my daily podcast, The Briefing, Monday through Friday every week. It's a Christian analysis of news and events. You'll find it at iTunes and at the website at albertmoeller.com. Until next time, keep thinking.